Hi, I'm Holly Fry, and this is Drawn, the story of animation. The first feature-length animated film uh, was made in the early 1900s by this woman named Lottie Reiniger, and it was called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. And the entire thing is cutouts. These these cutout, shadow puppet-inspired stop-motion animation. Uh, And it's incredibly beautiful. And all the compositions are really interesting because it's all in silhouette. That was Rebecca Sugar, the creator of Steven Universe. That movie she brought up, Lotta Reiniger's film about Prince Ahmed, came out in 1926, more than a decade before Walt Disney's Snow White, which often gets cited as the first animated feature film. What do you do when things go wrong? While Disney's name had already become synonymous with entertainment by the time his feature debuted, Lotta Reiniger was part of the German art scene in the 1920s, so her film, which is completely enchanting, is often overlooked in popular culture, although film and animation historians have lauded its achievement for decades. Since Miss Reiniger made Prince Ahmed, she has made over 40 films, all using simple variations of the basic technique. And simple though this technique might seem, it is in the subtleties of its application that its success is achieved. The point here is that women have been part of animation from the very beginning. Even on Disney's film Snow White, there were women, unsung artists working in the ink and paint department. Often, those women, which numbered as many as 100 when the studio was at full capacity, were working insanely long hours to painstakingly finish the cells that were needed to complete the picture. Many of these women were excellent artists in their own right, but others were trained to handle the demanding, detail-heavy work. And this job was so exacting that most who went through the training didn't even get hired. Only the best went on to work for the studio. Walt actually met his wife Lillian after she was hired to work in the ink and paint department. But even though the ink and paint department featured the women with the highest skill levels, they weren't part of the animation department. Animation was where skilled men worked. Ink and paint made animation's work look its best. What's that mean you ink it? Well, it means that Holden draws the pictures in pencil, and then he gives it to me to go over and ink. Next. So basically, you just trace. It's, uh... It's not tracing, all right? I had depth and shading to give the image more definition. Only then does the drawing truly take shape. But what's happened in the animation industry since the 1930s? Women have, of course, continued to work in the industry, but like any other profession, there is still some work to be done before they truly get the same opportunities and compensation as their male colleagues. I wanted to get a sense of how women working in animation today view the industry. I'm Kim Manning, and I'm the VP of Programming for Adult Swim at uh, Cartoon Network. And I, so I am in charge of the strategy and scheduling and uh, planning for where our episodes air and uh, what platforms they go out on and all of that. Kim worked her way through the ranks of network jobs to where she is now. She started at Cartoon Network as an administrative assistant, and then when Adult Swim formed, she was one of the first people working there. And like a lot of people who work in the industry, she's loved cartoons since she was a kid. I mean, I grew up watching cartoons. I was like the kid that would, 
I'm dating myself, but I would get up and set the, like, look through the TV guide and set the VCR to record what was on other channels so I could, like, watch, like, so I could watch things that were on on the same time. It's so much easier now you just, you know, tell your DVR to record it all, but there's a strategy involved when I was, like, seven. Hearing that story, it did not surprise me one bit that Kim eventually became a VP of programming. Over the years, she has seen a significant shift in the makeup of the staff at Adult Swim firsthand. I mean, I feel like that people do think I work in a building surrounded by men, and that really was true at one point. That is true. (laughs) There's this picture that hangs in the building where it's like, I don't know, like 14 guys and I'm in the center. (laughs) There was a time where that was true. But now I'm surrounded by so many smart and talented women. Like, Ollie Green does production for um, Heads Up. She's the VP of production for all the animated series. In the case of Kim's experience, that shift seems to have happened pretty organically. But there is a real drive within the industry to make a more conscious effort to achieve a more gender-balanced workforce. Let me introduce you to Marge Dean. The goal of the organization is to increase the number of women in animation, uh, in particular in creative roles. We did a little research and discovered that women make up anywhere between 65 and 75 percent of the student body in animation programs. So CalArts announced last year that they were 75 percent female in their animation program. Marge is the head of studio for the streaming content company Elation Incorporated. Her resume is a mile long, and it is impressive. She has worked on everything from Ren and Stimpy to Robot Chicken, and she's garnered a couple of Emmys along the way. I told her when we spoke that I feel like almost every corner in animation has somehow been influenced or touched by her. And that organization Marge mentioned is Women in Animation. That's a professional organization of which she is currently the president. And, uh, and yet women only seem to get about or have about 23, 24% of the creative jobs in animation. So it's a, it's a big disconnect. And, you know, what we took on as our goal is to hit uh, 50-50 by 2025. So we want 50% of the creative roles in animation to be held by women. One of the things that Marge touched on there is this situation that we're in now where women have ended up more in production roles versus holding creative leadership roles. It's almost an echo of sorts to the early days I just talked about at the Disney studio. The general sense, uh, the consensus amongst the, uh, the executives that I spoke to who are all working on these shows for 6 to 11, they were saying probably in about five years you'll see uh, sort of an equal breakdown of, of men and women on staff. And to do that, you have to be conscious of it, and then you have to try to make that shift. And so a lot more people now maintain that they understand this and that they're conscious of that. So, um, you know, will it be five years? I, I don't know, but that's what people were saying. And I I think that people are, are more aware of uh, this disconnect between, you know, thinking that your show is completely, uh, you know, gender kind of divided and then realizing, no, actually, you know, all the women are producers and and all the men are the creatives. That's Linda Semensky. She is a little bit of an industry legend when it comes to TV animation. 
She started out working in programming at Nickelodeon, and then when the network decided to move into animation at the end of the 80s, she moved to that department and was really instrumental in building it. She's also worked as Senior Vice President of Original Animation for Cartoon Network, and she is currently the Senior Director of Children's Programming for PBS. I wrote about this at the end of the 90s, like somewhere like around 97 or so, about, you know, how there had only been three female show creators for kids 6 to 11 shows. And I just assumed that, you know, I was identifying this problem, but, you know, it would get resolved soon enough. And so if you fast forward to now, there are two female creators out there. And, you know, some, some networks are working on shows for more, but on the air right now, there are two female creators for kids 6 to 11. So we really haven't made progress. There weren't a lot you know, all through the the 2000s or the the teens either. So it's not like there's a bunch that are unaccounted for. It's just there have not been many. And many of them have been duos where it's, you know, a man and a woman. But very few solo female creators. And that really shocks me because you'd think in all these years there would be more. Now, you might be thinking... Well, why is this important beyond the obvious of just, you know, equity? And I I think what's important is because these creators, these are all creator-driven shows, and the creators are encouraged to make a show that basically represents their worldview. They can capture what they think is important or, you know, what's worthy of being discussed. And the kids who are watching, you know, they get this worldview, which starts to be part of their worldview. If they particularly like a show, what they're watching becomes part of the way that they think. So if it's all men presenting their view of the world and very few women, then, you know, it's a slightly lopsided view of the world that you start to get. So that's not really fair to kids who would benefit from, you know, a more sort of well-rounded presentation of different views. Look, here's the hole I came out of. Hang on. What? It's my hole. Look, it's me size. You came out of this hole. This is where I was made, dude. One day just right out of this hole. So what about the other holes? Rebecca Sugar's show, Steven Universe, is often lauded as the only Cartoon Network show created entirely by a woman. I asked Rebecca if that's something she thinks about, and as she spoke, what she said really made Linda's point about different perspectives resonate for me. I think that it's something that I cannot escape thinking about. I feel like there's definitely a point of view Uh, And I definitely have a lot of goals that the people who came before me didn't have. And I find that it's exciting for me because I think there are so many stories that I'm really excited to tell and that a lot of people are really excited to tell that haven't been told um, because it's it's about a childhood that's maybe specific to me or specific to members of my team. Um, When you're making shows for little boys about little boys, it certainly helps to be someone who was a little boy. I don't have that advantage. (laughs) I feel that on a regular basis. I was really good friends with a little boy, my brother. (laughs) Uh, I was a little kid, and I have a lot of feelings about how it felt to be a little kid. And I was a kid who couldn't 
necessarily relate that well to other little girls. So I think that also puts a dent in another marketable run of stories <laughs> that I don't know if I can tell. Uh, as a kid, I found myself loving and relating to cartoon characters that were not supposed to be me. That was my experience. I was like, I love cartoons. I felt so guilty that I loved like SWAT Cats and Captain Planet that I like wrote a diary entry where I was like, I'm sorry that I'm watching these shows that aren't I'm not supposed to watch. Razor, tell the truth. Did you really eat that last Mongo pepper? Ah, oh, T-Bone, I can't believe you'd even ask me that. I can still feel the afterburn. No doubt about it, Razor. You are one macho cat. Ain't it the truth? You know, like, I knew because of how aggressively these cartoons are marketed and how aggressively they're gendered, I knew what I was and wasn't supposed to like, and none of it made any sense to me. So I was like, well, I'm the one that's wrong. I've got to be. TV says this makes sense. TV? you got to trust TV. Everything I love is coming from TV, right? So so I think I, I had sort of a wonderful time uh, loving all of these cartoon characters that weren't me. This is the thing that I've really realized, because I thought when I was making the show early on, I was like, oh, yeah, like... Of course, six to eleven-year-old boys are going to love Garnet, Amethyst, and Pearl. They're going to feel like they could be all, all, any or all of them, just like just like how badly I wanted to be <laughs> T-Bone and Razor, or Batman, or whatever. Like you know, of course. Um, I guess I just didn't think about the fact that there are a lot of children who, when they look at a cartoon, they're like, "Oh, that is me." Amethyst, I had no idea you've been upset about this. What? You had no idea? Oh, this is like my entire existence. You want to pretend that none of this ever happened. You think I'm just a big mistake. <gasps> that n never really occurred to me that you could be watching something or playing something and you could just be like, ah, this is an extension of myself. I really, this is, I, this is a thing where I'm running around that really feels like my life. I just never felt like that. <laughs> But it was fun. I was just like, oh, you know, everything I see is like a window into a different mindset. And and then I thought, oh, this will be that too, you know? The gems will be this window. Stephen will be this window into like a way that a person can be that's not you, but it's like someone you could adore. So I adored all of these characters. And I related to all of these characters. You can, And I think I took for granted that I learned to relate to people who are not like me. And then I got really excited with this show and in general to be like, all right, I'm going to make this thing my favorite kind of show, which is a show that's targeted at 6 to 11-year-old boys. I love those shows growing up. Um, that's the kind of show I wanted to make. Uh, but it'll be exciting because a bunch of people will get to relate to characters who are really different than them, just, just like I did. Oh, does this make any sense? Yes. <laughs> You're not the mistake. You're just the byproduct of a big mistake. No, that's not... I I just never thought of this as you. None of this is your fault. You didn't build this place. I... I'm sorry, Amethyst. I hope you can forgive me. You're the one good thing that came out of this mess. I always thought you were proud of that. That's a, I think that's the thing that blindsided me that maybe 
might have been what kind of knocked me over by 2015 was like really suddenly realizing that that the the thing I was not making the thing that I thought was the generic thing I was really excited to make. <laughs> I was not making a thing that was just universal and and that everybody could relate to because because everybody deep down maybe felt like I did, where it's like, I love these cartoons, but I feel a little alienated. I mean, that's a show that's what the show's about aliens. We are the crystal gems. We'll always save the day. And if you think we can, we'll always find a way. That's why the people of this world believe in Animation can be a really fun playground to work in, but sometimes frustration or just restlessness with how things play out at a large company leads people to forge their own paths. And then how did you end up transitioning from that to being boss lady of your own empire? Well, <laughs> I it was I did something super crazy. I, you know, I had this great amazing job that people would kill for, and it was before the recession and I um loved everything I was doing, so I quit. <laughs> I quit my job. <laughs> That's Ashley Kohler. She is the president of the animation and design studio Awesome Incorporated. And that job she left was as a director of production at Cartoon Network, a job she had worked her way up to over a seven-year period with the company. Over the course of that period of time, things definitely changed and it became a bigger place and more corporate and a lot more going on. And I stopped producing hands-on as much. You know, I was managing people and my role changed and the place changed and I had a seven-year itch and there was a lot that went into it. And so I, um, I gave them 30 days notice and I took a small business class at Emory I had a nest egg. Things were changing in my life personally. There was a lot going on. And I just uh, sort of jumped ship. And I took this little small business class uh, and got a certificate from Emory, which was hilarious. And I um, teamed up with an art director from Turner Classic Movies who also quit his job. And again, I wasn't married. I didn't have a child. I didn't have obligations. And we started a company out of the back room of his house and launched it off. And it was just two of us doing this crazy thing. And it's 12 years later now, and I have 20 to 30 employees, depending on where we are in a season of a show. And he went on in 2013. I bought the company, bought him out of the company in 2013. And so now it's my crazy thing that I run, and it's insane. At first, Awesome Incorporated was hired to do promos and packaging inserts, very similar to the work that Ashley had been doing at the network. Hey, Slim Jim Eaters, you want daring? I dare you to do this. I cover my chest, my arms, my butt, my groin, my entire house with flammable hand sanitizer because this is how I promote Slim Jim meat sticks. Flame on! Oh, it won't go. Flame up, flame on, friggin' flame on now. All right, now we got it. Slim Jim, no! It sucks! 
But eventually things expanded and her company started working on full shows. And then in 2011, we started, um, we added long form content and we started working on Aqua Teen Hunger Force and Squidbillies. To me, that means that Jesus is the president and the commander-in-chief of the armed forces and NATO and the special ops and the 007s and all them other double O'ers. Hell, he runs them all from heaven. I'm pretty sure the Constitution and the Bible are two separate documents. Oh, Benjamin Franklin did not die upon the cross so you could spout that mess to me. And then a couple years later, we added another series, Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell. But you see, fellas, Gary thinks that angel is better than him. It's, I mean, the angel went to heaven, and he didn't commit some horrible sin that sent him all here, but... I am so sick of your excuses. Claude is ready for premium shoulders. You got no fire. I got fire. I want you in their ears telling them what to do and how to do it. Hot fire. I tell people what to do, and they do it well. And so we're doing those shows now, and, and it's kind of, in the last year or so, we've kind of really been branching out to work on more development and, and other kind of long-form properties. Ashley is very aware of the disparity of women working primarily in production jobs versus creative positions. It's hard because I hear everyone beating that same drum. And myself, as a studio owner, I'd love to see how I could affect change in those areas. And I talk with our series producer, Brandon, about it. And it's funny, we're sort of stumped by why we're not getting more applicants in those areas. And Women in Animation, which is a a great um, association I belong to, has this goal of correcting that. And this is where we pick back up with my conversation with Marge Dean. And our program is completely built around hitting that goal. And we figured out that we have to work on talent development and then promotion of women, you know, getting them out in front of the people who uh, are hiring We have to talk to the studios about their hiring practices. We have to keep banging the drum and keep reminding people that this is an issue because a lot of people are, you know, they're like, oh, there's so many women in schools. It's going to just work itself out. Just give it a few years. And, you know, we've had that kind of a percentage or the majority of the student bodies have been female for a good seven or eight years now, and we have not seen it evolve uh, and change significantly. So, um, you know, we really believe that there's deliberate actions that need to be taken in order to um, to really have that influence and get more women into those positions. Ashley also pointed out an odd trend that she grapples with as an employer. We, we want to hire the best person for the job, obviously, and we don't want to sort of just make exceptions so that we have more women or minorities in the studio just because, you know. But we find this strange anomaly of seeing plenty of women in the schools coming through. And then we put out a call for applicants for visual effects jobs and for traditional positions. And we just get more men to apply. And we're, we're stumped by it as well. I asked Linda Semensky for her insight on this little conundrum. In addition to her work as an executive, Linda also teaches cinema studies at University of Pennsylvania. So she has some great insight into why women coming out of school aren't applying for creative jobs in TV animation. I don't know. I don't know exactly why they're not going for that. But, um, you know, they they may feel like it's not 
quite right for them anyway. Like it's not their sensibility. Maybe they want to do uh, features. I've I've suspected that a lot of women who get into animation go there because they love features. They love the Disney features. They love the Pixar features. They love you know the Miyazaki features. And you know they don't want to go do TV. They want to do features. So. I don't know if they're trying to get jobs and features and not getting them, but that's my theory. I, and again, I don't know that that's correct, but I, I feel like that might be more of a, a sensibility fit for a lot of the women who are going into animation, or they want to do independent animation and just make their own films. And I'm I'm basing a little bit of that on my own students, the ones who've studied animation. You know, some of them would be happy to work anywhere, and others are, uh, you know, just much more interested in film than they are in television. But she also sees a possible shift going on for television. She told me that TV networks are really supportive of women, and she is seeing a shift in how students today perceive the possibilities of the industry. Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's hard to know if that actually will happen in five years, because if you think about the history of the industry, it's always been a male-dominated industry. You know, it was an industry where essentially uh, women were, were really not invited into the creative side. And, and a lot of those beliefs are really like just built in to the way that people work now. So I think that as you see people, you know, joining the industry and others leaving, more people will come onto staff, or onto crews, who, who don't have this built-in belief that, you know, it's a men's industry. And so I, I think I think you will see that. I think five years is ambitious, but I, I think you will see that over time simply because the school programs really are, uh, you know, weighted towards women. And I, I think there definitely are more women who are growing up watching things like Adult Swim and Cartoon Network, and, you know, they have... Uh, these quirky sensibilities and um, you know I remember at one point uh, the first year that I taught at Penn there was uh, one of my students said is it true that it's harder for women to get into the animation industry than for men and you know I wasn't even really thinking and I said yeah you know that's pretty much the case and all the women in the class looked up at me like I was crazy I was crazy for putting up with that it was crazy that that was the situation Whereas, you know, I, I may had just, have just accepted it. I may have just accepted that, you know, that's the way it is. For women already working in creative roles in animation today, the path was sometimes a little less obvious. Well, I did not go to school for animation at all. Um, I've always done a lot of creative stuff in my spare time, but I went to college for math and computer science. And um, about halfway through, I started to think, well, but maybe I want a career path that's more creative. And that was around the time when computer animation was starting to get really big, um, like Toy Story had just come out. And I thought, well, I do computer stuff, so maybe this is a, a path for me. That's Liz Harvatine. She is a stop-motion animator, and she has worked on Moral Oral, Robot Chicken, Titan Maximum, and Frankenhole, among other shows. Yes, God is everywhere. Really? Everywhere? Even in you and me? That's right. 
It's called omnipresence, and it's very convenient. It lets you be in two places at once. Wow. I know. Imagine that. I could slice tomatoes and, at the same time, dice potatoes. So I, I didn't actually look into what that entails at all, but I discovered there was a very small studio near my childhood home, where I still went every summer, in Connecticut that claimed to do some computer animation, but they mostly did stop motion. And I just thought, well, I'm going to get an internship there. And the first time I tried, I didn't get one. But the second summer, the summer before my senior year of uh, college, I got an internship. And like I said, they didn't really do computer animation. Um, they kind of farmed some out. But, you know, all animation these days on a professional level involves some form of computers. So as an intern, I mean, it was a really small studio, and I just got in there and um, learned how to do, like, post-production stuff and um, using After Effects. And I also, like, helped them with their web page and whatever stuff needed to be done. And because it was such a small place and because I was free labor, uh, you know, I kind of just stuck my nose in and learned wherever I could. And, and eventually I was hired to... Again, kind of do whatever was needed, but I was paid, which was nice. And I eventually just kind of learned how to animate on the job. And uh, by the time I graduated college, they had a position for me just doing random stuff. But eventually they got a bigger, uh, a bigger TV series where they needed a lot of animators. And uh, they gave me a job, which was great for me. <laughs> I don't know if I was... Uh, totally qualified at the time, but it, I mean, it was a, a really great foot in the door for me, and I got to meet a lot of people who had more experience and had more contacts and stuff. That studio eventually closed, and Liz and her husband moved to L.A., where she got really into her stop-motion career with Stupid Buddy Studios. I just fell in love with stop-motion. I love the, um, the level of performance that is required, like, I kind of think of it as, um, I always wanted to be an actor when I was younger, but I was terrible at it. But I think of stop motion as kind of like acting in slow motion. Like, you're translating, like, the physical actions of, you know, the performance into a puppet, but you're doing it one frame at a time. So for someone who maybe can't do it in real time, like me, like, I can still think about it and break it apart and, and put that into the puppet and give my performance that way. Around the survivors, a perimeter creed. <sighs> okay, look, I, I mean, I know what you mean, but honestly, dude, this is a battle situation where clear, precise communication can mean life or death. They're 800 years old and super smart, so it's not like our speech patterns aren't something you could mimic with a minimum of effort. Look, it's fine for now, but in the future, you've got to just... Like, tell me what you want, like a person would, and then I'll say, yes, sir. Right? That's a good point. You've given me a lot to think about. One of the really fascinating things that Liz brought up in our talk was how great the animation industry can actually be for people starting families. I am not a mom. I've never had to juggle a career in parenthood, so this never would have occurred to me. Yeah, I mean, one nice thing about the way this industry works that I appreciate, I know a lot of people who don't work in entertainment or don't work in this industry in particular, it kind of freaks them out, um, especially my mom. Uh, but 
everything is kind of project-based, and, and there are certainly jobs where you're full-time and you work year in, year out. But um, as an animator, I've pretty much always been project to project. And when you're at a studio, you kind of have a, well, you may not have a written guarantee of a certain amount of work. Like when you know that you're a part of the crew and there are more jobs coming and you are going to be working in the future. And and especially because the hours can be kind of long, it's, I always appreciated having a little hiatus in between jobs, and now with my, with the way my schedule is now, the way my life is now, I really love that if there's a job I'm excited about, I can jump in and do something for a couple weeks, and, and that those jobs exist, that I don't have to, like, it's not all or nothing going back to work full-time or, you know, not working at all. So when I get, um, when I get an itch to animate and the stars align and there's a project that I'm really excited about, uh, I'm able to jump back in and, and do it for a little while. And that's really awesome. Liz also talked a little bit more in detail about her experience in stop motion and how the ratio of women to men works out in that sort of niche part of the industry. In the animation department, there definitely has been more men than women in most of the jobs that I've done. And I do think that's changing a little bit. You know, each department in the studio is kind of different. Like, there's different jobs that end up with having more men than women and some that have more women than men. I mean, typically in the puppet building department, you have more women. I feel like in sets, interestingly enough, it's pretty equal, which is kind of cool. Um, some of the computer, more computer-heavy departments um, 10 years ago, I think, were a lot more men than women. But now I feel like it's pretty, it's gotten a lot more equal. And, and again, I mean, this is my very limited experience in a very small industry. So this certainly uh, does not necessarily speak to animation as a whole. But I do see things kind of evening out slowly across the different departments. And, you know, also I think in, like in a lot of industries in entertainment, there are definitely more men higher up in directing and producing and creating roles. And that is definitely changing. But any industry like that, where there are just disproportionately more men in charge, it automatically becomes a little bit of a boys' club. And maybe it's unintentional on everyone's part, but it, you know, it can make it a little harder to get your foot in the door because you're not a boy. I think Liz hit upon something really important there. In several of these conversations, the idea came up that part of the reason that men continue to be hired into creative positions isn't nefarious, it's just an unconscious bias. As humans, we tend to replicate what we've seen before unless we really actively work against it. The brain wants to default to the status quo and what it has already seen work. So men often get hired into creative roles simply because that's how it's always been. Once again, here's Linda Semensky. So that's why it's so important to have the first female director of a hugely successful and beloved project that will that will change things because then people will be able to point to the kind of 
director they want to be, or they'll be able to reference this woman, and uh, or you know perhaps it will be more than one woman. And um, then once there are like models, role models, I think that that people will know how to talk about this. Right now, you know, there's not there's not a, a specific role model. You know, we can. Um, we can point to, you know, uh, Brenda Chapman, or we can point to certain uh, producers out there and say, yeah, I'd like to be that person. But there's not a, uh, a female peep doctor walking around. I guess um, Jennifer Lee. Gary, quit it. You're going to start a howl. I didn't start it. <gasps> she might be the one that changes things. And then once... Once she's a household name, if she's not already, um, once she is one, then I, I think things will start to change. So it's the search right now for the role model. And to become the role model, that person has to have the successful show and you know become that person that everybody knows. Jennifer Lee, the woman that Linda just mentioned, co-wrote Wreck-It Ralph, a movie I love so much I keep it on my phone at all times in case of comedy emergency. I'm just a surge protector doing my job, sir. Name? Lara Croft. Name? Wreck-It Ralph. And where are you coming from? Uh, Pac-Man. Do you bring any fruit with you? No. No, no fruit. And she also wrote and co-directed the massive Disney hit Frozen. That'll be 40. No, 10. Oh dear, that's no good. See, this is from our winter stock. Where supply and demand have a big problem. You want to talk about a supply and demand problem? I sell ice for a living. Ooh, that's a rough business to be in right now. As we were preparing this episode, the news broke that Jennifer Lee was named the new chief creative officer for Walt Disney Animation Studios. That's pretty huge and it's pretty great. I asked everyone I spoke with what advice they would give to young women today who want to pursue a career in animation. And Ashley Kohler had two great pieces of advice. The first was about portfolios. When we go to look at portfolios at a school, they are all doing the exact same projects. So the ones that stand out to us are the ones that have an opportunity to, or take the effort to do that one extra project on their own time that has nothing to do with what everyone else has done. And really making an effort to do something different so that we can see themselves shine and not just their five school projects. And it makes such a difference. It makes such a difference to us because we can tell what their personality is. We can tell what their passion is and we can tell what their style is. We get so many applicants for these jobs and they all start to run together. But when we see something different, that's when, you know, it really starts to stand out. And the other was about making use of the connections that you might already have. When I was in school and I was trying to find stuff, and this sounds crazy, but my mom would always hit me up with like, you know, Suzanne's son's friend works at this place. You should give him a call. And I would always think that she was nuts. Always. Mom, leave me alone. I don't want to talk to that person. But at the end of the day, I think... The real people that find their way in are the people that network. It's not just these cold calls and resumes that you send to the jobs board that find their way in. It's finding your mom's friend's daughter's brother that has a connection and using it. So if there's any way, and that's how I found my first jobs. Really, it was. I found a person that knew a person that knew a person, and I went and sat down with that person. That's how I found every job actually that I've ever had. 
When I asked Linda Semensky about advice, she definitely sees that things are changing and she just wants the industry to keep evolving. I think um, my advice to women right now, as they, you know, get out of school and, and, you know, work their way through the industry is just, you know, keep pushing. Don't, don't accept anybody who holds you back, you know, just keep pushing for what you want and keep working to get better and better at what you do. And uh, I think those things will help. Not that women aren't doing that already, but keep doing that. Marge Dean echoed Linda's sentiments. I think the single biggest thing that women, you know, in this industry and probably all industries need to do is to continue to speak up about whatever. You know what I mean? And speak up like it can be about sexual harassment. It could be about parental leave or being a mom and what they need in form of support that regard it could be speak up because you know what tell somebody you want to be a director or tell somebody you want to be a storyboard artist or you want whatever the next step is for you many 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 women just sit there and wait for somebody to say hey would you want to be a director you know as opposed to going i'm entitled i'm talented i should have this opportunity i want this opportunity I feel like a a big part of the message, you know, the drum I keep beating is, you know, you're entitled to this. Have that confidence and don't give up on yourself and don't acquiesce or wait for somebody else to uh, give you something. That's my basic advice is you need to speak up for yourself because no one else is going to take care of you. You have to do it for yourself. And finally, I wanted to stress that while women in the industry, and men too, can see some of the problems that still exist, there is still so much love for the work that they do. Here's Ashley Kohler. On the flip side, the upside, what would you say is the best part about being a woman in the animation field? It is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I I really do genuinely have to pinch myself every day. It is a cool, cool job. It's really cool. And we we get to do great things. And I I mean, I get to go to work every day doing a, a really enviable job. I mean, it's exciting every day and I get to do something super fun. And people call us and ask us on a regular basis if they can just come and take a tour of our studio and... I mean, how many people have the kind of job that people want to come just visit where you work? I mean, I have a hundred answers for why why it's a great thing to do. As a woman, um, I don't know if my experience is different than than what it is for a man. I think it'd be cool for a dude to do my job. I feel like I'm in a position now to affect change, and I've I've kind of gotten finally to a place where I, I'm hoping that I can affect change for other women and and bring them in and make it a place that we can affect these numbers and bring people up. And in an industry that seems, as we keep discovering episode after episode, to be endlessly hopeful, the women who have been paving the way see a really bright future. I asked Marge about the future of women in animation. You mentioned earlier that one of the goals of the Women in Animation organization is 50-50 by 2025. Let's say you hit that goal, and I hope we do. Do you think about what comes next for the organization in terms of mission? Actually, I would be perfectly happy 
to close down women in animation and go, we reached our goal, our job is done. And then some other organization could form or it would morph or change into something else. But like I said, I'd be perfectly content to go out of business in 2025 if we hit 50%. She also mentioned that there are a lot of studios talking with women in animation for help in getting women into their companies as creatives. So there's definitely uh, interest and drive among pretty much all of the studios. I mean, I, I can't think of anybody who's not at least said that this is something that they're interested in doing and many who are actually implementing programs that will, you know, develop female talent. And then the women themselves, as this next generation is coming up, um, you know, they have a completely different attitude and, and actually have a sense of entitlement that the previous generations never had. So for them, it's like, of course I'm going to have my own show, or of course I'm going to have, uh, you know, I'm going to be a storyboard artist or a director or a writer. Um, because I want to. So, you know, like that's half of the battle is the internal battle for women to uh, understand that they're entitled to this and that it's something within their reach and that there is support even if they don't see other people doing it. It is possible for them to do it. Linda Semensky looks forward to a time when she can ruminate on how it was in today's industry landscape. I think someday, someday it will seem funny that we were having these conversations, and I look forward to that. You know, I will be happy to say, yes, I had to explain these things, and, you know, they didn't make sense to me either. <laughs> On our next episode of Drawn, we're going to dive into what's probably one of the most popular aspects of animation— the villains. Everybody loves them, even if you're a good guy. <laughs> uh, if you would like to write to us here at Drawn, you could do so at drawnpodcast at howstuffworks.com. We are Drawn Podcast across the spectrum of social media, and you can visit drawnpodcast.com for show notes on every episode we work on, including links to some of the cool projects that people that we talk to are uh, working on themselves, so you can kind of get a little deeper into the lives that they have talked about with us. Special thanks to all of my guests. I really appreciate them taking the time to speak with me. And we hope to see you next time on Drawn. Drawn.